As always, we certainly are delighted for the opportunity God has granted us with such grandeur to assemble on this first day of the week. Many of us have, of course, enjoyed an earlier opportunity today. And as we gather again, as the shades of evening have come about us, an opportunity to not only sing and to pray, to engage in those aspects of worship pleasing unto God, but to devote a portion of study to His Word. The lesson titled tonight is God's Breathtaking Universe. And as a part of that lesson, I thought we would each be reminded about the tremendous and amazing universe in which God has placed us. In fact, I would hope that as you and I study for the next few moments, giving some reflective thoughts to that which the Bible teaches on this particular subject, that we perhaps will have a renewed, invigorating feeling about the nature of just how awesome God is, among other reasons for the universe He's made. In fact, on this opening slide, I hope that you'll appreciate rather directly that there is a particular science that, quite frankly, we, at least in a brief fashion, will give some consideration to this evening, the nature of astronomy. Now, I have provided what might well be a somewhat boring and mundane definition, but you'll notice that there are some who would define it as simply a study of those objects, and matter in particular, that in fact exists beyond the envelope of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, that by itself does not sound terribly intriguing, I suppose. It does not, in fact, motivate one, I wouldn't think, to give some of the considerations that you and I will have tonight. In fact, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I would be quick to say, and I'm sure we would all readily agree, that astronomy, on the other hand, offers a remarkable, in fact, a breathtaking view to the handiwork of the great God of heaven. In fact, that handiwork might well be highlighted by some of the initial comments that we're about to make. I would ask you to notice, and perhaps you remember it well, you probably realize with me that mankind has had access to telescopes for a few hundred years. Those telescopes, however, often provide images that are rather unresolved. That is to say, they're blurry. And the reason is because of the Earth's atmosphere, at least in the main due to the particles and the smog and the other kinds of blurring effects that the atmosphere brings, it was realized, in fact, long ago that if one could perhaps have a telescope and it was actually above the Earth's atmosphere, that it could provide truly remarkable images with clarity and with amazing detail. You'll notice that in 1990, the human family did put into space what's now called the Hubble Space Telescope. As you can see, it orbits some 353 miles above the surface of Earth, and in so doing, it is not restricted and limited by those effects of the Earth's atmosphere. Its images are well recognized to be incredibly detailed, amazing in terms of the kinds of picturesque colors that it provides. I would ask you to notice, interestingly, that given its position, this telescope orbits the planet every 97 minutes. As it does so, its mirrored surface is ground to better than one part in 800 thousands of an inch. It truly was designed with an idea, with the detail necessary to show what is this amazing universe in which we live. At this point, as you can see, that telescope has now been used for a couple of decades, somewhat more. But as we look at the pictures that it makes available, pictures that remind you and me about the one that made it all, 
the one whose universe we're studying, the one whose pictures, in fact, these truly are. These kinds of artifacts lead us to notice some of the things at the bottom. Some of the pictures, quite frankly, are nothing less than stunning. Look, for instance, at the planet Saturn. Now, that planet has been known for a long, long time. And yet, until we placed the Hubble Space Telescope in its orbit, it was known that it had rings. But look at how fine detail those rings are. Look at the colors that are apparent in them. Give appreciation to, in fact, what one ought to seriously consider upon seeing an image like that. That is a planet millions of miles from Earth. And yet, look at how amazing it appears. Not only that. You might easily give appreciation not only to things that might well be considered that close to earth, but even an image like this one. Look at that galaxy, a beautiful spiral galaxy. And as you and I look upon that and appreciate that all contained within that are literally billions and billions of stars. And the Hubble Space Telescope has afforded and provided pictures whereby you and I can appreciate that the very same God that orchestrated the details of earth and all of its environs have also orchestrated galaxies, extensive galaxies, far, far at times from earth. That particular galaxy that you look upon there, that beautiful and exquisite example of a spiral galaxy has been often studied. Why don't we use those to prompt us to some additional thoughts and then maybe look at some additional photos or pictures in just a moment. You and I are well appreciative of the fact of the text that Joe read just a moment ago. From Psalm 19, verse number 1, the text very clearly says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. You might notice the heavens... And the verb that's utilized is the verb declare. It's not that they suggest. It's not that they in other ways give intimation toward. They absolutely declare the glory of God. It should be the case that when physicists and astronomers and astrophysicists, and yeah, you and me who may not fit those categories, peer into the heavens using telescope or not, we should be reminded of the absolute greatness of one who could have made that and who did make it. For isn't it true that we readily appreciate passages like these? In Genesis chapter 1, when we are given the impression of the fourth day of God's creative activity, it was stated on that occasion that He made two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. Those recognized as the sun and the moon respectively. But he quickly makes observation that there were in addition to that stars. And those stars, it was affirmed in terms of all of those particulars of that fourth day were made for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. The constellations that you and I appreciate from time to time, and in fact even the books of the Old Testament like Job and Psalms make reference to them as well constellations like Orion, and constellations such as the Pleiades. Even the ancient individuals of the earth knew about them. You and I today are able to utilize the Hubble Space Telescope and take remarkable pictures and images of them. I would ask you to give thought to some of the words of wisdom found in the Word of God touching subjects like these. In Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, 
For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Apostle Paul even commented, did he not, about the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world, and yet he affirmed they are clearly seen. One, it seems, has to try to miss them. One has to make great effort to not reach the right conclusions. You and I just noticed the rings of Saturn, and we saw the characteristics of that incredible galaxy spiraling character. You would think that one of the first conclusions upon looking through a telescope and seeing that would be how great God must have been to have fashioned this. The universe could have been boring and mundane and dull, and yet He's filled it. He's literally filled it with amazing and stunning things that should point you and me and, yea, all that would look to the fingerprints of the one that made it. You'll notice another passage to which you and I can readily appreciate is probably the most famous image that the Hubble Space Telescope has produced. It is this one, often called the Hubble Deep Field. May I suggest to you that that image is truly a breathtaking scene. Think about the smallness of the ultimate area which was resolved in that image. It would be about like taking a tennis ball and holding it at the distance of a football field from you. That's all that is in the heavens, and look at how much is there. Every one of those bright spots that you and I see in that, they're not simply single stars, they're entire galaxies. There are literally millions and billions of stars in every one of the little bright spots that you see. My God made that, and your God made that. And He overrules all of it with the absolute declaration and majesty of His glory and power. God made that. And the Hubble Space Telescope has just presented me and you a picture of it. When you think about the degree of this universe in which we live, isn't it truly a breathtaking thing? Doesn't it time and again remind us of just how great God must have been to orchestrate it and overrule every single point in it, moment by moment? The Hubble Deep Field. I might say to you that there have been an additional picture along that line taken this one again was simply one small picture in the northern hemisphere. There has been a southern hemisphere one, and it, it shows just as much detail and just as many galaxies. Our God made all of it. In addition to all of that, perhaps this picture. You'll appreciate too. That again is found at places in our universe. It looks so intriguing, doesn't it? In fact, it has a rather unusual name. It's called the Horsehead Nebula. Looked upon from the right perspective, it has the appearance of a horse's head that is found again in a distant place in the universe in which you and I live. That, as far as we can tell, is a composition of hydrogen and dust and gases of various and sundry places, but when imaged in the right way, the pictures are truly stunning the Horsehead Nebula. That again is in our universe, the very universe over which God rules and reigns with absolute majesty. You'll notice in light of all of that, perhaps we can add more pictures even to these. Our pictures might in fact culminate at least for now with this one. 
Look at this amazing and stunning photo. You and I, upon looking at that today, might in fact need the assistance of an astronomer to help reveal all the intricacies of it. But you might be surprised to find in the midst of that picture is a black hole. And we appreciate the orbiting character of these other stars and things about it, indicating the absolute presence of this amazing, this incredibly massive thing. The God of heaven made it. This universe in which you and I live is an open testimony to exactly what He's capable of doing. Furthermore, look at yet another picture. Would you believe that again, that is in the heavens upon which you and I can look? It's called the Cat's Eye Nebula. Can you imagine seeing what that would look like with the impressiveness and the nature of the Hubble Space Telescope and all of the resolution of which it's capable? A cat's eye nebula. God didn't make a universe that's dull and boring and mundane. This universe is a testimony to Him. And in that testimony we find the greatness and the absolute character. You and I can learn so many valiant lessons by appreciating the nature of this universe that He made. One by one as we look at all of these photos, this particular study could have been extended multitudes of times. I would suggest to you that all of these photos, in fact, are freely available on the World Wide Web if you're interested. All you have to do is Google search for the Hubble Space Telescope, and in fact, there's a website, and on it are myriads of openly available photos. Pick your favorites and just be amazed. One by one, as you and I proceed to these next ideas or conclusions, our interest tonight is not a dissertation in astronomy. It is impressive to see these pictures, but may I suggest the overwhelming message of the Word of God is to point us to the one who made all those pictures possible. The one who, in fact, about whom we're now about to study. Look at some of the verses that I've asked you to consider. There's no question that upon looking at the heavens and the cosmos and the features of it, you and I could readily agree that it is spectacular. In fact, it is breathtaking. But the overwhelming message of Scripture in passages such as Psalm 113, verse number 4, is that God is greater than the heavens. His glory stands reminiscent and supremely able to exist above it. You'll notice also in Psalm 57, verse number 11, as it spoke there about the greatness of the heavens and God's glory is yet above it. You would think, wouldn't you, that an astronomer or an astrophysicist who first saw images like these and was utterly astounded by them would immediately fall on his knees and pray unto the God of heaven. But yet so many find other supposed explanations and they find other supposed reasons to claim there isn't a God. And yet they look at these images and they find other evolutionary presentations to supposedly describe them. Foolishness and folly to the absolute height. The universe, as you and I have learned earlier tonight, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 verse number 1. And in that verse we find the opening presentation. This took place at the beginning. It wasn't sometime thereafter. In the beginning God fashioned this universe 
And as he fashioned it, he did so with the absolute detail over just a very, very few days. It didn't come into being over billions and billions of years. The principal date given to our universe is a little over 13 billion years. Scientists seem so fond of utilizing that word and saying all the evidence encourages us to conclude this universe is between 13 and 14 billion years old. No, it isn't. Because God in His Bible said that it's not. You and I know very well that the proclamations and the claims of science may often differ, but the facts of Scripture remain unchallenged. In six days, Exodus 20, verse 11 says, In six days God made the earth, the heavens, the sea, and all that in them is. That doesn't leave anything out. It was made in six days. That is not 13 billion years, a far cry from it. Not only might that be quickly affirmed, but you and I notice that these images that we've seen are just a foretaste of challenging us with this thought. I would ask you to notice. If this universe that God has made, this universe in which you and I in the flesh can dwell, if it has this stunning and spectacular kind of character, what must heaven be like? The place where He dwells and the place where the saved and the ransomed and the redeemed throughout all the ages are one day going to be. If His universe is like this, just how great must heaven be? Sometimes we sing a song with that very message in it, don't we? How beautiful heaven must be. Perhaps John gave us a foretaste of that in the Revelation, didn't he? As we arrive at chapters 21 and 22 of the Revelation, the very last two chapters in the book of God, we find him on that occasion. John, what do you see right in the book? John saw this cubical city coming down out of heaven. It had twelve foundations of the finest gems and stones known to the human family. It had three doors on all, or three gates, entrances, if you please, on all of its sides. It had a street of gold in it. But you remember it was described in other bountiful ways with the exquisiteness and the extravagance and the glory that you and I would anticipate relative to God. I want to go there, don't you? If this universe was made by Him, and you know that heaven must be far grander because of verses like these. You notice, to your attention, I would call Second Chronicles 2, verse number 6. And a thought restated a bit later in Second Chronicles 6, 18. As Solomon, in his wisdom, made observation about the temple physically that he was building, he was quick to claim that even the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Not just the heaven, but the heaven of heavens. You see, our God is that grand. Some physical edifice, some physical consideration and amalgamation of space and time cannot contain Him. He's grander and greater than that. This universe should just give you and me a brief consideration and foretaste of just how great He really is. Surely in light of those things, some of these verses are quick to come to our mind. Isn't it true that the Scriptures so often point us in a direction like this? We noted earlier about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And that creation mentioned in Genesis 1 verse number 1 is a creation that stood throughout the entirety of the Word of God and is frequently referenced. 
How often did Ezekiel look back upon it and make open statement about God's creative activity? As if that wasn't enough. What if we think for just a moment about bringing things close to home? We've looked at some pictures of the far distant recesses of the cosmos. What about this planet on which you and I live? Is His handiwork also as clear and as evident? Is it as easily manifested here as we have seen in some of these other places in the universe? You and I know very well that as we look at all those pictures that we've seen earlier, one thing still has to stand so supremely evident. There's not one single planet, not one single celestial body anywhere that has even the slightest characteristics of planet Earth. Think about how special Earth obviously is. We're close enough to a source of energy, namely the sun, that can bathe us with all the warmth and energy that we need. Furthermore, the temperature on the surface of earth is just right so that water can exist in all three phases, solid, liquid, and gas. Furthermore, we know very well that the seasons are orchestrated in such a way to make this a place habitable. Though astronomers have looked with intensity not one single place anywhere has been found to rival earth. In fact, even comparable to it. Perhaps that leads us back to verses like these. Maybe the Word of God had told us about ideas like that long ago. In Isaiah 45, verse number 18, we read clearly the prophet Isaiah affirming God made earth to be inhabited. He apparently didn't make the other places to be inhabited. They're pretty to look at. And they're exquisite to consider in terms of the images they may provide, but He made earth to be inhabited. We have an atmosphere, and we have water, and we have sunshine, and we have the other attributes that make life not only possible, but comfortable in many ways. Perhaps you can see in addition to that, we have a statement in the 115th Psalm. In fact, near the close of that beautiful Psalm, the God of heaven through His inspired writer asserted, I have given earth to the human family. He gave it to men. Wasn't it true in Genesis chapter 1, He did tell Adam and Eve, you have dominion over the earth. He gave them the especial challenge and charge to reign with a bit of supremacy over the creation He'd made. The other parts of the distant cosmos, you and I recognize just how different they are in that sense. The beautiful habitability of earth. Look at this picture. No one would doubt that that's a beautiful and stunning image. Look at all of the stars existed and how beautifully bright they are. And yet, not one single habitable place of which we have any knowledge. Isn't earth a very unique testimony to just how finely detailed God has orchestrated things for you and for me? Our scientist friends sometimes are quick to tell us that life happened on earth because of some lightning strikes long, long ago and suddenly some proteins and amino acids came together and it started to live. Hogwash to the utmost. Life didn't come about that way. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. There's how life came about. 
you and I know well today that no matter how long one waits, inanimate things will not become alive. It doesn't. That's been known for hundreds of years, and yet scientists still parade that in front of our students as if it's fact, and it's been disproven for centuries. Inanimate things don't become alive. The God of heaven instills things with life. You and I, in particular, will be the subject of some matters next in our lesson. You'll notice furthermore, as we think about this picture, a moment ago I asked you to think about planet Earth. Look at how it looks like from the Hubble Space Telescope. The beautiful waters of the oceans, the land masses and the white clouds. We haven't found any of that on these other planets. And let me say to you that in light of some things, it is true that certain other celestial bodies have some kind of an atmosphere, but often it's noxious and deadly. It's made of poisonous gases which could not contain anything alive. And look at what God has given to us. An atmosphere of oxygen with some carbon dioxide and the other things necessary. Our God did that, and it wasn't accidental. Some of these thoughts, I hope, will challenge us yet again to think about some additional statements in the book of God relative to our subject tonight. We've highlighted briefly, more recently, our thoughts concerning planet Earth. But of course, you and I know that what makes Earth so special is not just the planet itself. God made it to be inhabited, but He made it to be inhabited by you and me, human beings, the very zenith of His creation. Have you ever pondered the nature of that sequence in His creative activity? Day one was light, this inanimate thing, and you and I realize how important it is. But day two, the cosmos and the distant firmament that you and I so easily understand. Day number three, plant life arose, the waters were gathered together, and dry land appeared. Day number four, the sun, moon, and stars, all inanimate things hanging in the heavens. Day five, the life in the atmosphere and the oceans of earth. Day six, land-dwelling creatures like cattle and dinosaurs and dogs and cats. In all of that, we finally arrive near the apparently the close of day six, man. The zenith of his creation, for man was made in the image and in the likeness of God. A fact stated not with respect to any of the other things he had made made in the image and in the likeness of God. I trust that you and I then should never feel unloved. We ought to never feel depressed or overtly discouraged for you and I bear the very image of the very God of heaven, the one that made this universe we've studied. And out of all the interest and all the details of that universe, He's even more interested in you and me. Let's develop that thought like this. Just as surely as we're made in that remarkable kind of way, doesn't it highlight then just the kind of characteristics that the human family should have? God calls us to a high plateau, a very special godly living. You'll notice that's because of the way He made us. Isn't it sad when the human family so often chooses to live far beneath its privileges? living far away from the dignity with which God invested it, living, in some cases, worse than animals. 
But you see, that's what happens when we divorce ourselves from God. It's what happens when we have no interest in His book and keep it out of the lives of our youngsters and our older ones alike. The Bible tells us so quickly that God, in fact, had such great interest in earth and those that dwell on it that the New Testament in particular tells us an unbelievable story in some ways, but a story that we know is true because it says it is. God sent a part of Himself for the creatures living on that planet. They, in fact, chose to do what God did not like. They chose to transgress His will. And in that state, they were lost. And God loved them so much. He loved them so much. He sent a part of Himself. Not just to teach them, not just to set before them example, but to die for them. To die for them. They, in such ingratitude and unthankfulness, in fact, were happy to carry out the sentence. They nailed Him to a cross. What about verses like Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9? By the grace of God, He tasted death for every man. That was Jesus the Christ. God, you see, didn't send His Son for all those nebula and cat's eyes and things we've seen earlier. Those are beautiful to look at. But there's something far greater. Your soul and mine. There's something worth all of eternity, and it's your soul and mine. God sent His Son not for all those distant places and planets. He sent His Son for you and me. And He sent His Son that you and I might enjoy a relationship with Him, having been freed from our sins, having them forgiven. We could enjoy fellowship with Him. 1 John 1, verses 5 and 6. Perhaps you can appreciate from Hebrews 9, verse 28. The closing verse of that ninth chapter in the Hebrew letter, the Hebrew writer pointed out so swiftly and so powerfully, So then Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Notice He was sent to bear the sins of many. He wasn't sent for the moon. He wasn't sent for the far distant planets like Saturn, as beautiful as it may be. He was sent to address the sin problem. And that brings us right to the inhabitants of planet Earth, you and me. As you can see, furthermore, the testimony of God's love is so wonderfully presented, isn't it? For God so loved what? The world. It does not say Mars. It does not say Mercury. Nor does it say the far distant places of the cosmos. He, God sent His Son because He loved the world a statement representative of those like you and me who live on this planet. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That passage in John 3.16 leads us immediately to Romans 5 verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. God acted with initiative on your behalf and mine that though you and I were in sin, though you and I were apart from Him, Jesus came and He died, making way for, of course, the plan of salvation. One of the last things on that slide then reminds us about this universe that you and I have considered in some way tonight. It does look so very beautiful in many ways, doesn't it? But may we never ever forget that it is not permanent.
This universe will not last indefinitely. So many times the Bible writers call our attention to that fact. I would bring to your attention this said in particular. Even the Old Testament writers knew it. Remember, those folks lived long before there were any telescopes, long before there were any kind of detailed and sophisticated astronomical equipment. And even David knew it in Psalm 106, that there's coming a moment and a time when the heavens will be rolled up like an old garment and cast aside. When you and I take our coat off and we walk in the house, we take it off, perhaps lie it on the sofa, David said, that's exactly what's going to happen to the heavens. God's going to roll them up like a garment. That's going to happen. All of those planets and all of those black holes and all of those things we've studied, they will not endure. Their end is coming. You and I know that that universe and its, its ending is described in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 11 and following. In fact, on that occasion, the Hebrew writer quotes from the 102nd Psalm and applies it directly to the ending of this universe materially. Surely, in light of those things, Peter directed our attention so powerfully when he said, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, into which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. May I suggest to you that the earth, the heavens, were all mentioned in that one verse. And isn't it amazing that as Peter described that particular desolation, he used a very interesting Greek word to do it. You may have noted as a part of that description, it really identifies the most fundamental elements and molecules out of which all of that's made. They're all going to be burned up. Those in our world who have some hope for a perpetual earth, they're misguided. Those who have some hope, at least somewhere in their mind, for some kind of ongoing existence on earth, it will never be. When the Lord Jesus Christ descends out of heaven and He appears in the clouds, we know the dead in Christ will rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 16. And we know, yea, that all the dead in fact shall rise on that day. For Jesus Himself declared in John 5, 28 and 29, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And we recognize on that great occasion, on that day when the Lord's return has then taken place, and of course all have been whisked from it, this universe will be no more. Time and space will have ended. We know at that point the fullness of judgment is before, and then of course the sentence of eternity hangs in the balance. This universe, as you and I can appreciate, there is something greater than this universe. May I suggest that as stunning and as breathtaking as some of those pictures may well have been, they again surely must in wisdom point all who are right thinking to the one that made it all of it. For He is greater than the universe, and surely we need to be right in His sight, and to dwell with godliness in the hollow of His hand. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, 
we find Jesus giving an impression of that day of judgment. But the very last verse is the one that so bountifully asserts that those who did the will of God will be taken into eternal life, but they that did not into everlasting punishment. Which is it for me tonight and which is it for you? Surely in wisdom this universe can direct you and me to recognize that there is a great, great God. He has the power to destroy this universe in an instant if He wants to. He has the power to bring the affairs of all the things about us to naught if He wants to. And on that day of judgment, He has all the authority to cast into hell if that's the proper verdict. And for very, very many it shall be. But by the same token, He has the beautiful opportunity to usher into heaven those that are the faithful. God's breathtaking universe. I hope we've been reminded tonight of just how great it is, but far beyond that to allow it to point us to the one that made it. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God spoke that universe into existence and He did so out of nothing. That's the God that I want to serve. How about you? And that's the God that I'm sure all of us would be so quick to say that I want to be in a right relationship and faithful to Him. He sent His Son to die for you and for me. Tonight, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? To borrow the words of Revelation 7:14, Is it such that you can easily say that in baptism you were saved? Borrowing the words of 1 Peter 3:21. The plan of salvation, the one that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself came to give His stamp of approval to is this. You must believe that He is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. You must confess His name audibly in the hearing of others, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. You must be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38, and Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. If you haven't attended to that, why not tonight? The waters behind me are prepared. Everything is ready. You could leave this place tonight with your sins washed away and ready to pillow your head in comfort and ease. If you have become a Christian at some former moment, and you maybe, by way of the universe, have come to appreciate just how exquisite and great God is, but over time you have slid from faithfulness, you have in fact forgotten the God that made all of that. You quite frankly have become a servant of the devil. There are only two masters and if you're serving the devil tonight, don't leave this building that way. You see, we can pray with you and for you and we'd be happy to do it. Just like Simon did in Acts the 8th chapter when he in fact had erred after he himself had been baptized, he admonished Peter to pray for him and Peter was happy to do it. And so too would we be tonight. If we could help you in any way tonight, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing this song of encouragement. And may we be reminded that the universe points us to the glory of God. For indeed, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. If we could help you in obedience tonight, won't you come while together we stand and sing?